Good afternoon. I'm Phil Aylwood uh, from Adelaide, re reporting on events at the American Heart Association meeting in Anaheim. There have been a number of interesting trials, off some with an Australian flavour, and I'll talk about those first. There were two trials which really, I think, will affect practice. The first trial is the PRESERVE trial. Uh, this was led in Australia by Martin Gallagher from the George and worked in cooperation with the VA in America and was testing uh, what we could do for renal protection in patients undergoing angiography. Overall, there were over 5,000 patients, about 700 odd came from Australia and New Zealand. And it was a two by two factorial design uh, with NAC versus placebo uh, or bicarbonate versus saline. Both of these are commonly used. There have been many trials in the past, none of which have been adequately powered, and I think the area was keen to be sorted out. Anyway, the study was finished early for futility, and essentially there was absolutely no difference uh, between NAC and placebo, and between bicarbonate and saline. The outcome of that really is that in practice, all we do to do is fluid load these patients. The patients who had impaired renal function were undergoing either coronary angiography, the vast majority of them, or ordinary angiography. So I think many centres in Australia only fluid load at the moment, but this confirms this is the right practice, I think a very important trial. Another trial which had an Australian flavour was the TRIX trial, which was looking at transfusion after cardiac surgery. There were about 630 patients each from Australia and New Zealand, so 1,200 overall in this trial of about 5,000 patients. And in that they tested the hypothesis of restrictive transfusion. So in order to get in one arm, you had to have a hemoglobin less than 7.5 in order to be transfused. In the other arm, less than 9.5 in the ICU or the operating theater, or 8.5 on the ward. As we know, uh, the whole question of transfusion being harmful has been raised many times in the past. The outcome of this trial was, as you'd expect, with the more restricted um, level of uh, hemoglobin used for transfusion, there were less transfusions, but still 50% were transfused. Uh, in uh, the 7.5 group, but over 70% was transfused in the uh, 9.5 group. And the outcomes in terms of uh, death, uh, myocardial infarction, stroke, were, much, uh, were better in the patients who received less transfusions, i.e. the restricted group. Of particular interest, this appeared to occur in the elderly, which is a little bit counterintuitive, where we always think they need that extra bit of hemoglobin to, to function but it declares that they don't. So I think this will change practice significantly. People will be, continue to be much more restrictive in their use of uh, transfusion. Another small trial uh, from, from China, uh, I think will really confirm what other trials have shown, but maybe encourage the surgeons to use dual antiplatelet therapy more. Uh, this looked at a group of ACS patients who underwent cardiac surgery and looked at graft patency at one year and compared about three arms of aspirin alone Ticagrelor alone and aspirin and ticagrelor. The uh, drugs were started within 24 hours after bypass surgery if the patients were stable. Uh, at the end of a year, there was a significantly more greater patency in those patients receiving aspirin and ticagrelor than those receiving aspirin alone. And there was a trend towards a better uh, patency with ticagrelor alone compared to aspirin, though it was less than the combination therapy. There was about a 10% difference in uh, graft patency uh, between about 85% and 75% uh, at one year. Now I think this was a relatively small trial in itself wouldn't change what we do, but I think taken in conjunction with the PLATO study, which demonstrated that in patients with ACS, 
whether they received medical therapy, PCI, or cabbage, they did better at a year. Uh, some people are always a little bit skeptical about the cabbage component. I think this will add uh, momentum to that, so it would encourage, I hope, surgeons uh, to use dual antiplatelet therapy in ACS patients who uh, undergo um, bypass surgery. Um, there are a couple of uh, other studies looking at the, the stopping or not of uh, the novel anticoagulants undergoing electrophysiological procedures, either pacemaker implants or ca a catheter ablation. There's been data previously that it's Surprisingly, it's better to continue warfarin through these procedures than to interrupt it. And with the uh, NOACs, it really appeared that interrupting them or not interrupting in terms of pacemaker, not a great deal of difference. If you interrupted it, they got a 72-hour break. If you got a, didn't interrupt it, they had a 14-hour break. There was no difference in bleeding outcomes or in stroke outcomes. Similarly, with catheter ablation, they looked at what compared uh, interrupted NOAC uh, compared to uh, non-interrupted warfarin and showed, if anything, there was less bleeding with the interrupted NOAC. So I think this is helpful guile for some of our uh, electrophysiology colleagues. Uh, the next uh, group of trials which were presented really were um, subsets of the bigger trials that were presented back at the ESC, uh, and uh, Fourier in particular, uh, which was presented early in the year. So what, they, what the Fourier investigators showed was that you could find subgroups within the population uh, of people with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who benefited more from uh, the PCSK9 inhibitor evolocumab. So they looked at patients who had uh, who'd had a, an inf were early after their infarcts, had had recurrent infarcts, um, patients who had peripheral vascular disease, uh, and, or patients who had multivessel coronary disease. Not surprisingly, all of these patients uh, had a higher rate of events compared to those who didn't. And in some, uh, the, the relative difference was actually better than, the absolute, than, the, than with the uh, patients who just had single vessel disease or, or not so severe disease. When, if you have a higher risk, if the relative benefit's the same, you're going to have a bigger absolute benefit. If you have a higher relevant relative benefit and a higher absolute risk, you're going to have a much better benefit. So it's going to help us maybe select patients who will benefit from these uh, ex expensive agents. It, from the Cantos study, uh, Paul Ricker demonstrated that uh, if you suppress inflammation, the drug works really well. If you don't suppress inflammation, as you might expect, it hardly worked at all. So he broke the population down to those who the, the CRP returned to less than two and to those who didn't. And if you return to, le to less than two, then you had a significant reduction in MACE and, in fact, a significant reduction in mortality. This may be a way forward in using some of these drugs where you may give a dose, see, because this was the after the first dose you saw this effect, see if you can suppress inflammation and then carry on with the ongoing treatment. So again, very useful information to add on to the, contest, con uh, the previous CANTOS trial. There was a little bit of extra data from the REVEAL study with aniceptopid. Uh, looking at the diabetic population. Again, a high-risk population, much higher event rate, the same relative benefit with the drug and therefore a better absolute benefit, uh, as you might expect. I think the surprising thing is, was the high uh, diabetic um, event rate. So both these trials together with um, the Fourier study really are beginning to tease out from all the patients we see with, who've had a MI or ACS, who are the ones who are at highest risk for future events who we benefit most from the new and modern treatments. 
I think the other highlight of this meeting has been the release of the hypertension guidelines by the American Heart Association and the ACC. Uh, in some ways, they, I think, uh, simplify uh, things for, for all of us. Um, some may say they complicated them. Their definitions have changed significantly, so they say that if your blood pressure is over 120 uh, systolic, um, then you have elevated blood pressure. If it's over 130 systolic or over um, uh, between 80 and 89 diastol diastolic, then you um, have stage one hypertension. If it's over 140 on uh, 90 of either elevated systolic or diastolic, you have stage two hypertension. This increases the number of people labeled as hypertension uh, significantly uh, up to 45% of the adult population in the US. However, they make the point that their treatment recommendations, particularly for those in the 130 to 140, uh, are initially certainly lifestyle measures. So what they look at there is if your blood pressure is between 130 and 140, if you've had an event, you need more active treatment probably with drugs, or if you have a high absolute risk greater than 10% in 10 years, you'll probably end up needing treatment with drugs. But for the vast majority of that population, at least two-thirds of those with an elevated blood pressure between 130 and 140, they'll be able to uh, get away just with having um, lifestyle changes, uh, weight loss, change in diet, cutting out alcohol, etc. cetera. Uh, so they will in we increase the people who we label as, hy as hypertensive, and we will increase uh, the number treated with drugs a little bit, but not as much as the definitions might uh, indicate. Whether we'll now start changing our guidelines in Australia is obviously something we'll have to discuss further. The guidelines also make the point that it's very important how you measure blood pressure. They're particularly keen that you, uh, on a home measurement by uh, patients rather than office measurements or even ambulatory measurement and obviously remind people that uh, you can't just accept the patient's walk in the room and take the blood pressure, you need to let them rest, you need to yeah, make sure they haven't been uh, rushed up from the car park, which is often the case at our hospital, uh, and make sure they sit and take the blood pressure. So um, I think they're the highlights for me. There's plenty of other basic science here uh, and other things going on, um, but they're the highlights which I think will affect our clinical practice.